It's good to welcome you here. I'm going to begin just reading some words from uh, Psalm 95, uh, familiar words uh, to many of you. And after I've read these words, uh, then we're going to hear these words sung. Uh, It's uh, from Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Father, we come and we want to worship you today. We want to worship the one who is worthy of all of our worship and our praise and our adoration, the one who is worthy of our very lives. We thank you that we can meet together on this day to worship you as your sheep. In our current climate, we don't take for granted the privilege we have of gathering and taking time aside to worship you, albeit with restrictions that are in place. Father, we so desire to sing your praises at the tops of our voices. We want to see each other and speak to each other face to face with unmasked faces. We long to shake hands and to hug. We want to share meals together. And we pray that you would hasten the day when these things will happen again. But we thank you that we have the sure and certain hope of heaven. Where we will see you with unveiled faces. Where we will sing with all our hearts together as a multitude of peoples, and where the only distance we will measure is the vastness of your great love. Help us in these days to keep that hope in our hearts and to share it with others. In these days of darkness, Father, would you bring the light of the gospel and make it shine all the brighter. In these days, 
bring people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has conquered death. Heavenly Father, this week as, as toddlers has begun and we look to try and start again other ministries in the church, help us to do that safely and to do that in a way that enables us to clearly share the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And tonight as we proclaim that gospel here together, as we come around the Lord's table and proclaim the Lord's death, we pray that as we do so, you would draw us nearer to you and that we would love you more and grow more like you. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, our next song helps us to think about the perfect love of our Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made for us. If you have your uh, Bibles with you, if you turn to Matthew chapter 19, 
And we're going to spend some time uh, in the first 12 verses of uh, this gospel. Matthew 19, verses 1 uh, to 12. Well, before we uh, look at that, uh, let me just show you this picture that was in the news this week. You may uh, or may not have seen it. I don't know how clearly you can uh, see this, but this uh, photograph was part of a news story this week about a couple who were celebrating their divorce. Uh, So this is a quote from the article. Uh, We have wedding, maternity, and anniversary photos to celebrate love and life, but we don't often celebrate divorce, no matter how amicable the split was. So one couple, who we see on the screen, uh, who split on friendly terms, have decided to change that with a fun divorce-themed photo shoot that involved both the ex-husband and wife. So the couple themselves were the star of the shoot, holding up hilarious signs while laughing away. And if you can't see, uh, she's holding this sign, uh, will you divorce me? Uh, And he uh, holds the sign saying yes. Uh, They said, we are by no means condoning divorce, but we're not ashamed to celebrate the end of our marriage. Well, in our country this year, in June, uh, MPs backed the Divorce, Dissolution and Separation Bill by an overwhelming majority of 200 votes. This bill allows somebody to simply walk away from a marriage without having to give a reason and without their spouse having to contest it. Uh, You can cancel your marriage just like really you can cancel your mobile phone contract. And MPs represent the country at large, and uh, there are representatives. And so the huge majority that passed this bill gives a good indication about what our culture thinks about marriage, doesn't it? Well, in Matthew's Gospel tonight, we're going to see that Jesus has, in his day and in ours, a completely countercultural view of marriage, and in fact, we'll see, of singleness too. Uh, we'll see that his views are just as countercultural today as they were in the period of the Roman Empire uh, where he was living. Uh, we've come back to Matthew's Gospel after quite a break, uh, unintentional due to being um, unable to be at church. Uh, But the point of Matthew's gospel, if you don't remember, is to show us that Jesus Christ is the promised king from the line of David and Abraham, who has come to bless the world by saving his people from their sins. And all that Matthew is writing is designed to show us that, beginning with his lineage at the very beginning, uh, and continuing with his words and works, and showing us how it links with the Old Testament, Matthew is showing us that indeed, he's giving assurance to God's people that Jesus is God's Messiah, the one who has come to save us from sin. At the time he was writing, God's people needed that reassurance, and here is Matthew giving us that. And he arranges his account of the life of Christ into different sections. Uh, there are five of them. Each one is a section of, of story of, the, of, of what, what he did and said, Uh, And then it follows by a section of teaching, which always ends with something like what we read at the beginning of chapter 19, verse 1, where we see here, when Jesus had finished saying these things. When we read a phrase phrase like that, Matthew's moving on to a different section of, of his account of the life of Christ. And as we move into a new section now, which really runs to the end of chapter 25, where the main theme of this part is the kingdom of God is coming. And Matthew, uh, who chooses to use the phrase kingdom of heaven to describe the kingdom of God, they're the same, uh, same thing. That phrase, kingdom of heaven, occurs over and over and over and over again. And in chapter 19, really to chapter 23, we're going to see the countercultural nature of God's kingdom. If you are part of God's kingdom, you call yourself a Christian, you are part of something that is totally 
uh, countercultural. It turns our world upside down, inside out, turns it on its head. And what we see throughout these chapters is Jesus saying or doing something, and then the culture around him, usually the religious leaders, are in opposition to it. They can't believe what he's saying because it's so opposite to their way of thinking. And when your uh, worldview or your cultural conditioning is turned on its head, often the response is to attack back. And so Jesus faces opposition. And so will we if we're as countercultural as Jesus calls us to be here. And so tonight, the countercultural nature of the kingdom of heaven is seen through marriage and singleness in God's kingdom. That's what we're seeing in Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12. So let's read uh, those verses together and see what Jesus says about this part of his kingdom. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning, I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are also those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is God's word. Before we come to the, the meat of it, the section on marriage and divorce, it's worth just stopping and considering these Pharisees for a moment. You would think that these Jewish religious leaders steeped in the Old Testament would understand who Jesus is and be amazed at what Jesus is doing. But when our worldview, our conditioning is challenged or attacked, we are in danger of missing the point. And that is what is happening with the religious leaders here. And in fact, they missed the point about two specific things. First of all, they missed the point about Jesus. So in verse 1, notice how Jesus leaves Galilee where he's been working and teaching. And we read he goes to the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. And he's on his way to Jerusalem where we know, as we've got the whole of this gospel written for us, he is going to die. And wherever Jesus goes, there are crowds that are gathering. And so we read in verse 2, large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Now Matthew's gospel records the word heal more than any of the other gospels. Uh, there's so much of it going on in Matthew's gospel that I think uh, we can get a bit used to it. Uh, we, can, we, can, we cannot be so amazed at what is going on here. But usually when Matthew uses the word heal, it, it refers to, to mass healings. So it's not just a freak event where one or two people are healed, but whole groups of people in whole areas of where Jesus goes 
have sickness wiped away. Nothing has ever happened like this before. This is a sign that, that God is among us. It shows who Jesus is. And it's a sign that the kingdom of God has come. It's a taste of heaven on earth. Where we read in heaven that there will be no more death or pain. Jesus is bringing here a reverse of the curse. And the religious leaders see this. They come to Jesus when the crowds are there. They see the healings. Of all the arguments they have with Jesus, one they never ever have is those healings did not take place. They never deny it. And so imagine if you're there, you see this amazing work going on. I wonder what, what would your reaction be? I, I hope it would be, wow, this is, this is amazing. What kind of man can do this? The Pharisees should have been thinking, steeped in their Old Testament history, is this the Messiah? Surely this must be him. But what do they do? In verse 3, they ask a question about divorce. You see how they miss the point? Jesus is doing the work of Messiah. And they want to trip him up with a question. It says there, they came to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now this question was controversial because there were lots of answers that people had to it. So in one sense, they were hoping that Jesus would upset one group or another with what he said. But more seriously, Jesus had moved, we've read, to the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. And that's an important uh, phrase because he's moved to the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. That's where he's gone. And if you recognize that name, he's the man who, do, who beheaded John the Baptist. Why? Because John the Baptist had said that he should not have married his brother's wife. He'd accused, rightly, Herod Antipas of adultery. And so the Pharisees probably were hoping that Jesus wouldn't just upset uh, one group of people or another, but someone in particular. If he says something that upsets Herod, maybe he'll lose his head as well. They completely missed the point about who he is and what he's doing. They were focused on their own agenda to bring him down. And we can end up doing something very similar. Sometimes we see this kind of attitude in people who argue over minor points of supposed contradictions in the Bible that aren't really there, and miss the point that Jesus died and rose again, and the evidence is clear that this took place. And so they'll, they'll nitpick at little things and miss the big point. Or as Christians, we can be this way when we get so worked up and fight over secondary things that don't matter so much, and we miss the bigger picture of, of the unity we have around the important first things of the gospel. And at the moment, I have to confess, in my own life, I have sometimes been guilty of missing the bigger picture of, of who Jesus is and getting bogged down and depressed over the regulations and restrictions we have. And miss the fact that it's a real privilege, isn't it, that we can be together as God's people. And it is a privilege that we can hear God's word. And we can even broadcast it online and such things. I've, I've been guilty sometimes, and I think all of us perhaps have in various ways, of missing the bigger point about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let's keep Jesus and elevating him at the forefront of all of what we are doing. So the Pharisees missed the point about Jesus. But they also missed the point about marriage. We see this by the fact that they ask a question on divorce to begin with. And in it, we see their attitude to marriage. So divorcing for any and every reason was an interpretation of some verses in the Old Testament law from Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'll show those verses on the screen. Uh, they say this. 
If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. This would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Now that's a lot there, but what is happening is that in Israel, divorce was rife. And as a consequence of this, women, who were the victims here, were being thrown out of their homes and left with no source of income or protection. Sometimes they would have been able perhaps to return to their parents, but sometimes they were left destitute and ended up in prostitution, and something wrong with them was assumed because they had been divorced. And so to protect the women in this situation, this law was written not as a command to divorce, but to regulate it and protect them with this certificate. With the certificate of divorce, they were able to remarry. The only command in this passage is that the, the, uh, the woman was not able to remarry the man who had divorced her. The result of this was to stop men divorcing their wives without thinking and thinking, well, if I throw you out, I can just have you back later whenever I want. He couldn't do that because God says here the woman was defiled because she had had another marriage with another husband while the first one was still alive. The first husband couldn't just expect this wife to to just come crawling back to him. What he had done was broken the marriage permanently. It was not a consequence-free action to just throw her out. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, the Pharisees are referring to this phrase, something indecent, that's found in Deuteronomy 24. So when we read in Matthew 19, notice there, for any and every reason... That was one interpretation of the words we see in Deuteronomy 24 of something indecent. And there were two uh, schools of thought about what this, uh, this verse or this phrase, something indecent, meant. Uh, there were two schools of thought with two rabbis. One rabbi said that only the husband could divorce the wife and it can be for any reason whatsoever. And there were examples in Jewish writings of men divorcing their wives for burning their dinner, for example. That was a, a reason why the, the, the husband could get rid of the wife. But there was another school of thought that said, well, the only grounds for divorce, what this meant here, was adultery by the wife. Interestingly, when we read here something indecent, that can't mean adultery because that was punishable in Deuteronomy 22 by death, actually. So there was real debate about what was going on here. Which, which school was right? Well, the school that said, for any reason whatsoever, was the most popular with the men, for obvious reasons. They had something in their back pocket that, that meant that if the wife upset them in any way, they could just get rid of them. It was easy. That was the debate that was going on in Matthew 19. But in answering the question, Jesus turns their worldview upside down. They want to talk about divorce, but they miss the point of marriage completely. And Jesus tells them about marriage and shows them that kingdom marriage is countercultural. The Pharisees are focusing on some... Uh, obscure piece of legislation, if you like, that might get them out of marriage. Jesus goes back to the beginning. And he says, look at verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together let no one separate. 
Jesus takes them back to the foundations in Genesis. He takes them to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, which is where we read about humans being made male and female. And then to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, where we read about the first marriage. Well, what does Jesus teach us about marriage? Well, first of all, we see that it is between a male and a female. And that's the obvious conclusion of verse 4. Uh, He made them, in answering the question about marriage, he made them male and female. That's very countercultural in our day, isn't it? Secondly, notice the words relating to permanent unity. So we read that a man leaves his father and mother, and then we read the words uh, like united, uh, one flesh, no longer two but one flesh, joined together, let no one separate. It's like a, over and over again, Jesus is saying, this is a permanent unity. And thirdly, we read how a married couple is joined by God himself. Now, just as an aside, by the way, in the original creation that Jesus is referring to, there was no death. But since death is in the world, uh, that does end the marriage bond. As we say in our traditional wedding vows, uh, till death us do part. That wasn't there in, in the beginning, but that is, uh, what, that is something that breaks the marriage bond. So in answer to the Pharisees' question, when is divorce okay? They were looking for an easy way out of marriage. Or rather, they were really looking to trip Jesus up. But Jesus basically says that they have completely missed the point of marriage by even asking that question. Divorce is never, ever a good thing. It is never worthy of a photo shoot. It is never a good idea to send a card to congratulate someone that their divorce has gone through. Something that uh, I was asked to sign one time uh, in a job I had. I refused to sign that card. No way am I going to celebrate someone's divorce, even if they're happy about it. If marriage is a man and a woman permanently joined together by God, Jesus commands here, let no one separate them. But the Pharisees still want to talk divorce. And so in verse 7, They try to trap Jesus again. They say, why then? Uh, Did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, again, they refer to these verses in Deuteronomy 24. The ability of of a husband to divorce his wife, and by the way, it would never have been the other way around at this time, was so ingrained in their culture that they just could not accept what Jesus was saying here. They were reading into the Bible what wasn't even there, what they wanted to hear. Notice, you don't have to read the whole passage again, but they ask, why did Moses command a man give his wife a certificate of divorce? But in these verses, there is no command to give a certificate of divorce. The only command is found at the end. The first husband is not allowed to marry the wife he divorced again. That's the only command there. The certificate of divorce was not commanded. Divorce was a protection for those women, not a command. And so in verse 8, Jesus explains that this law in Deuteronomy, notice what he says, Moses, what? Permitted. Not commanded. He permitted. Because your hearts were hard. Hard hearts refers to disobedience. In other words, divorce was going on and the impact on women was such that the certificate of divorce came in as a protection for them because the hearts of those divorcing was hard and disobedient to God. But Jesus says this was not how marriage was designed in the beginning. The design was as Jesus said in verses 4 to 6. And so in verse 9, we see Jesus explain what God's law is. He begins with that phrase that's hopefully familiar to us in Matthew's gospel, I tell you. 
So when we read that phrase, we read it a lot in the Sermon on the Mount, usually you hear some verses or uh, an interpretation of verses from the Old Testament, and Jesus says, I tell you, which is his way of saying, I'm going to tell you what this really means. I'm going to tell you what God's law actually says. And he says this about divorce or about marriage. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So he's saying if you divorce and remarry, you are committing adultery. And and the reason is that the one flesh permanent union joined together by God still holds true. However, notice that Jesus does give an exception to this rule. Divorce is permitted, and again, I would say not commanded, okay? Not commanded, permitted if there is sexual immorality. Well, what is sexual immorality? Well, it's actually a different Greek word to adultery, and it's more broad than adultery. So adultery is sexual relations with someone's spouse. Sexual immorality is any sexual relations outside of marriage, which can include adultery, but it's more broad uh, than that. That is the only exception given here in Matthew 19. But if we went to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there is another exception there, which is where Paul writes about abandonment. If a, if a spouse abandons another, walks out, we're told there that the, the, the other spouse is no longer bound in that situation. And there are other difficult scenarios we find in our fallen world. There are uh, abuse situations and all sorts of things that go on that are, are difficult and hard to deal with. And I am aware that for some of us, uh, this is an extremely uh, painful subject. Divorce is always a tragedy. And many of us are scarred by divorce. And those scars are painful reminders of past hurts. It's never something, though, we celebrate, is it? Never something we get a photo shoot for. However, even with those uh, exceptions and those difficult circumstances, even with those in place, they are not the main point of this passage. The main point of this passage is not the exceptions. In fact, there's no coincidence, even in this passage, that it follows Matthew chapter 18, which, if you remember, ends with a section on radical forgiveness. So even where there is sexual immorality, it is not commanded that we divorce. Rather, we want to work wherever possible to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. And where that has gone to as far as it can go and it cannot work, only then is it, even, is it permitted. We face a, a similar problem as the Pharisees, if we begin by looking for the exceptions of how I can get out of marriage. We miss the bigger point, which is this. In God's kingdom, marriage is a sacred institution that is put together by God and is completely countercultural. And we've got to see it this way, however painful some of our situations may be or have been. Well, in verse 10... The the Pharisees, they melt away. We don't hear from them on this subject again. But we do hear from the disciples. And the reason that we can say that the point of this passage is that kingdom marriage is so countercultural is in part because of their response of being totally shocked. Look at verse 10. They say, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. In other words, this standard... It's just too high. I mean, Jesus, it is convenient for us to have a get-out-of-clause. Have you never heard of a prenup? I mean, who knows what will happen in years to come? This, what Jesus is saying here totally blows their minds. They, they just they can't believe what he's saying. 
And it is just as radical today, isn't it? It is estimated, uh, you may not know this, but it is estimated that 42% of marriages end in divorce. 42%. Uh, Most people we know live together before they are married. Uh, We live in a world that is entertained by adultery. Marriage has been redefined by the state from male and female to same-sex marriage. Uh, And by the way, just on that, the state can say they have redefined marriage, but they have not redefined marriage. They have redefined what they think marriage means. God defines marriage. He does it in Genesis, and Jesus Jesus defines it here. And as I mentioned earlier, divorce has been made so easy now that you can just get out of a marriage like a phone contract. And the Christian view is seen as outdated and old-fashioned. But it is a testimony to the world when a Christian couple stay together loving Jesus and loving each other year after year after year. However, I would also say this, that the teaching of Jesus here is not to be applied in the wrong way. What I mean here is it is not to be applied for a spouse to just be a poor spouse or an abusive spouse or one who does everything wrong short of committing sexual immorality and then says to their spouse, well, you've got no other way out because you can't divorce me. No. This teaching of Jesus means that we hold marriage so high that we obey all the commands in the Bible concerning it including the commands to love our spouses with a Christ-like love. Believing what Jesus says here, that this person is one flesh with me, and their good is my good. And so I want to treat them in such a way that I would want, I would want to be treated myself. I want to treat them in such a way that, that, it, that, that I love them just like Jesus loved me. That's how we apply how high Jesus holds marriage. No one who is calling themselves a Christian should ever turn to this passage and then say, therefore I can treat you how I like because you can't divorce me. I don't even think you can call yourself a Christian if you turn to that passage and use it that way. Kingdom marriage is counter-cultural. However, there is something which is perhaps even more countercultural than kingdom marriage, and that's the next part of our passage, kingdom singleness. Now, for the people in Jesus' day, singleness was, or, or not getting married wasn't a lifestyle choice. It was actually seen as a curse. In their worldview, blessing from God came from having children. And in a sense, this comes from the Old Testament, where God promised to bless Abraham through his physical descendants who became the Israelites. And so if God's blessing comes through physical family, having no family meant in that worldview that you are under a curse from God. However, in the Old Testament, we read some prophecies that this will change. Uh, Here's two from Isaiah. In Isaiah 54 verse 1, we read, Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. And then Isaiah 56 verse 3. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain. I am only a dry tree. Isaiah here is looking to the future and three groups of people who were not seen uh, as part of the blessing of Israel because they couldn't have Israelite children, the barren woman, uh, the foreigner, and the eunuch, they rejoice and they sing. And when we come to the New Testament, we see why they can rejoice. 
Because family is not in the New Testament a physical as much as a spiritual reality. We are joined together as the family of God by adoption into his family. And so we've read already in Matthew's gospel in chapter 12, uh, Jesus replying to those who were, uh, were questioning this, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brother. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my, mother, my brother and sister and mother. So here Jesus is affirming that the church, his, his body, his people, are his family. And in Matthew 19, Jesus affirms that, even, uh, that, that sorry, both married people and single people are part of this family of rejoicing people. And that worldview is so countercultural in his day, and we're going to see it is in ours as well. And, in, and, and so the, the disciples are blown away, not just by what he says about marriage, but also singleness too. And in verse 11, we see that this view is so countercultural, not everyone can accept it. In verse 10, the disciples actually say, Well, it's better not to marry. Well, you can, tra- you can translate the word better also as advantageous. So they're saying, if what you're saying, Jesus, about marriage is true, then even singleness must have its advantages. And we've never, but, but, but not being married, in our worldview, is a, is a curse. You see? They're saying marriage is so countercultural that even, even not being married must have its advantages. And they may be saying it jokingly, but Jesus takes it seriously. And in verse 11, he says, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it's given. And the word accept here means understand. So not marrying being an advantageous thing is so radical, so contrary to the prevailing worldview, that not everyone will be able to get it. Only those who God gives understanding to, will understand. Or in other words, this is a Christian worldview. This is a kingdom worldview, is what Jesus is saying here. And in verse 12, in order to explain this to us, Jesus uses the example of a eunuch, a castrated male. And they were often uh, eunuchs, uh, they were men, They were always men, but they were men used in the royal court and were trusted there because they would not be tempted to meddle with the monarch's harem. Uh, An example, if you want to read about this, would be the first chapter of Esther in the Old Testament where uh, we see eunuchs working in Xerxes' harem uh, there. Uh, Eunuchs were a despised people. They were seen as cursed because they couldn't have children. And they were an extreme example for Jesus to use. Now, Jesus often uses extreme examples when he is talking about the uh, countercultural nature of the kingdom. Uh, One uh, place we could go to to look at that would be Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus talks about cutting off limbs and gouging out eyes. He's using an extreme example to show Either in that case, the seriousness of it, but in this case, the radicalness of it. So we're not called to literally cut off our limbs, and we're not told to literally be eunuchs either. But what we're seeing here is a a radical example of a radical way of life. And there are three types of these in verse 12. There are eunuchs we read by birth. So uh, something physical that prevents them having children. Uh, There are man-made eunuchs. Those are the ones used usually in the royal court. Uh, But both of those first two are involuntary, uh, people that uh, they don't choose that way of life. But there is a third category here that Jesus talks of, those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. So they specifically forego sex and marriage in order to serve in the kingdom of God. And notice here, they are doing it for God's kingdom which means that there is a place 
in the kingdom of God for those who in the world view of the people of the time were cursed. Jesus, therefore, has a shockingly high view of marriage, but a shockingly high view of singleness. Uh, I don't see, by the way, uh, singleness for the sake of the kingdom here as a permanent lifelong calling as much as uh, when we are not married, we live this way. Now, for some, that may be lifelong. But living like a eunuch in the sense of chastity is the calling of all who are not married, whether that is lifelong or whether that is not lifelong. And this is where I think the end, uh, the, at the end of verse 12 is often misinterpreted. Notice what Jesus says. He says, the one who can accept this should accept it. So some think that this means some people just need to accept the fact that they're single and they will be forever. I don't think that's what Jesus means here at all. Others think that it means that some have the ability to be single and others don't. I don't believe that's what Jesus means here because all of us are going to be single at some point in their lives unless, as a married couple, you both die together at the same time, which is most unusual, right? No, what this means, this phrase, is something we often hear from Jesus. It, another way of, uh, that he speaks like this is when he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So it's a challenge to accept the teaching that he, he gives here. He is saying that marriage and singleness are both as countercultural as he's laid them out to be. And as Christians, we need to accept this to be true of God's kingdom. I hope you can see, therefore, why kingdom singleness is perhaps more countercultural even than Christian marriage. Because for Christians, there are two ways of sexual faithfulness. We are either faithful to our spouse or we're faithful in our chastity. Those are the two options that we have as Christians. And some non-Christians would agree, maybe even most would agree or sympathize at least with the first. You should be faithful to your spouse. I mean, they would say, at least while you're married. But almost no one would affirm that you can have a fulfilled, joyful, meaningful life and have no sexual relationship whatsoever for your whole life. That is totally countercultural and radical, isn't it, in our day? Just as much as it was in Jesus' day. And just like in Jesus' day, people in our day would think, well, that is a kind of a curse. They wouldn't use that word, but that's what they would think. But Jesus says, understand this as Christians. At the end of verse 12, for the one who can accept it, so the one who can accept this should accept it. And, it, and Christians are the ones that should accept it. That's what he's saying here. And the understanding here, the acceptance, is not just an intellectual one. A Christian is one who knows Jesus is the source of life and joy and peace. And that faithfulness to him, whether married or not married, is the only way and the only place where true satisfaction is found. Now that is not to say that unmarried people will never desire marriage and never desire sexual relationships. It's not to say that unmarried people will never marry. Of course, many will. But it is to say this, that all of our desires as Christians, which is the only relationship status that matters, that we are called followers of Jesus, all of us find our desires met fully in him. And even if we're married, if we think that those desires are fulfilled in our spouse, our, our spouse has become an idol. Our desires are met in Christ. 
And Jesus is saying to both the married and the singles, you have a place in the family of God and both are advantageous. And you can think of it in another way. There is no office or no ministry in the church that a married person can do that a single person can't. Not one in the whole Bible. And there are advantages to both. That is the radical countercultural nature of the kingdom of God. And it's wonderful, isn't it? As we close, I would encourage you in this way. Don't be like the Pharisees and miss the point. There is one relationship status that counts. It is not whether I am married or single or however many other relationship statuses Facebook might say you can have. The only thing that counts, and in the end, the only thing that truly matters is whether I'm in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Whether I am saved from my sin by his death on the cross. Whether I am in his kingdom, with his people, with his family, who, are, who become our family. And whatever your circumstances are, whatever, whether you're married or not married, use the advantages of your situation, whatever they may be, and this, also, this passage also means, by the way, that whatever situation we are in, we have advantages in that that we can use, or rather God can use, for his kingdom. There is no one here today that cannot be used in amazing ways for God's kingdom. I mean, we've seen that in Judges, haven't we? Where God doesn't choose those who think they have all the advantages. He chooses the weak and uses them for his glory so we can boast in him. And so I urge you and encourage you, brothers and sisters, use the advantages you have in your situation for the glory of God and for his kingdom. Let's pray before we respond in song. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that your kingdom is a kingdom that is for all those, whatever our circumstances and situations, who put their faith in Jesus. And we thank you that we are welcome we don't deserve to be. We are sinners. And all of us stand before you not based on whether we are married or not married. We stand before you because Jesus has died for our sins. And we thank you for that. And we want to surrender our lives to you and pray that you would use us for your glory. Amen. Well, our final song uh, just responds by uh, calling for Jesus to be the one to whom we surrender everything to. Jesus, all for Jesus.
while we come to some time around the Lord's table. Uh, we've talked about surrendering Bless the Lord.